Just a quick update before today's episode. In a nutshell, we're offering free access to our attachment theory and psychotherapy online course, which normally costs £99 in exchange to those who leave a review on our podcast. The course is run by Professor Jeremy Holmes, one of the world's leading experts in how attachment theory can be applied to improve therapeutic practice. And just so you know I'm not making this up, Peter Fonagy has described Professor Holmes' latest book as one of the most valuable contributions to the field in this century. Normally this course costs £99, but you can get it for free by simply leaving a review of this podcast on the platform you use, whether that's iTunes, Stitcher or Spotify. Then simply email us on support at theweekenduniversity.com and we'll grant you free access to the course. Reviews make a huge difference in helping us get the ideas shared by our speakers out to a wider audience. So not only will you be getting a £99 course free of charge, you'll also be helping a greater number of people improve their quality of life. Thanks for your continued support of the project, and I hope you enjoy today's show. Professor Hoffman is a Professor Emeritus of Cognitive Sciences at the University of California in Irvine. He has authored over 100 scientific papers and three books, including Visual Intelligence and The Case Against Reality, How Evolution Hid the Truth from Our Eyes. Professor Hoffman has been awarded with a Distinguished Scientific Award from the American Psychological Association, the Rustam Roy Award of the Chopper Foundation, and the Truland Research Award of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. His writing has appeared in Age, New Scientist, LA Review, the LA Review of Books, and Scientific American, and his work has been featured in Wired, Quanta, The Atlantic, and Through the Wormhole with Morgan Freeman. Professor Hoffman's TED Talk, Do We See Reality As It Is, has over 2 million views. You can follow him on Twitter at Donald D. Hoffman. So I'll talk about, is reality an illusion? And I'll start with our everyday perceptions uh, are of objects in space and time. We see trees and deer and foliage, light and shade. We see a three-dimensional world of, of shapes and objects. And for most of us, we, we take that world as objective, that we, we assume that what we see is pretty close to what's really there. If I see a deer, that's because there really is a deer there. If I see a tree, that's because there really is a tree there. And most of us have the idea that uh, space and time are fundamental. It began with the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. There was no life, uh, just matter at the beginning, at the Big Bang. But as it uh, went on and cooled, we got, uh, you know, particles and then stars and galaxies and so forth. And eventually we got life appearing. And finally, after you know, who knows how many hundreds of millions of years or billions of years, um, you know, consciousness appeared among certain life forms. And so, so we, we take a standard physicalist view that uh, the universe began with the Big Bang, and it's basically space-time and objects within space-time, particles and so forth. And consciousness and life are relative newcomers in, in this framework. And we typically take a reductionist point of view. We, we assume that uh, uh, as you go to smaller and smaller scales of space-time, 
you find more and more fundamental objects, particles, for example, and you also discover more and more fundamental laws. So typically, um, modern physical science assumes that space-time is fundamental and that physicalist reductionism is a good methodology, that we go to smaller scales of space and time to find more fundamental laws. And right now, the, 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 the most fundamental levels are the quarks and leptons and bosons of, of the standard model of physics. Uh, before that, we thought about the periodic table of elements. And before that, we thought about earth, air, fire, and water. So it's been the same kind of idea for, for millennia, but we have it updated with the, the current fundamental particles of quarks, leptons, and bosons. So that's, those have been wonderful pillars of science for, for many decades, centuries, actually. Uh, and they've done a great job. We, we assume that from these fundamental particles, we can build up um, larger objects, such as pyramidal neurons. And with those kinds of objects, we can build up even bigger objects like, like brains. So we have this idea of a hierarchy of, of, of objects in space and time from the very microphysical particles um, all the way up to macroscopic objects like brains and, and even stars and galaxies. We do know that, that some of these objects seem to have consciousness. So when we look at our face in the mirror, uh, we know firsthand that what we see in the mirror, which is just skin, hair, and eyes, is hiding something very, very important. It's our conscious experiences, our, our love of chocolate, um, our love of poetry, or whatever, whatever we might like, our fears, our hopes, our desires, our friendships, all the things that are important to us that we're conscious of um, are hidden behind a face. But if you look at a person's face, you can get some insight into what they're thinking, what they might be experiencing. You get some insight into their consciousness. So, so the, the face gives us a little portal into the consciousness of the person that we're looking at. When we look at a, um, a, an object like a cat, uh, now, you know, our our image of the cat gives us less insight into the consciousness of the cat. We probably most of us think cats are conscious um, and we have some idea about their consciousness, what foods they might like or dislike, um, but we don't have as much confidence as we do with people. When we get down to a mouse, we're perhaps even less confident. When we get to objects like microbes, um, we figure they're probably alive, but we might debate whether they're conscious at all. And when we get down to things like particles and rocks, uh, we're pretty convinced that we're dealing with something that is not only not conscious, but uh, is not living at all. And so, so we have this idea then that um, space-time is fundamental, physical objects like particles are, are fundamental, and only if you get certain complicated uh, arrangements of particles do you get life, and only if those living creatures have certain special properties uh, will they have some kind of consciousness. And from this point of view, then it's an interesting idea whether um, if particles in the brain can create consciousness, maybe um, you know, other kinds of particles that we build into um, artificial intelligence may also be conscious if we get the right kind of organization. So somehow the idea is that maybe the organization of the particles, if they have the right functional properties, uh, would lead to consciousness. Um, but we'll also talk about panpsychism, which takes a slightly different view, because Philip just talked about that. So, but, but the idea in artificial intelligence is that maybe if we get the right kind of 
architecture uh, the right program, then we might also boot up consciousness in a physical system. So, so the idea then in most approaches to understanding consciousness, um, the assumption at least for human consciousness and, and animal consciousness is that brains are, are gonna be fundamental somehow or embodied brains. And brains then somehow give rise to uh, our conscious experiences. So the, the matter in space and time is fundamental. Um, and we'll see with, with panpsychism, as, as Philip Goff talked about, um, the idea is that space and time and particles are fundamental, but the particles themselves um, uh, have consciousness, are conscious. So we'll talk about that. But in this physicalist framework, you, we have quotes like this from John Searle at, at UC Berkeley. The brain is a machine. It is a conscious machine. So, of course, some machines can think and be conscious. Your brain and mine, for example. So, so the idea is that somehow, once you get a physical system, such as a machine, uh, complicated enough in the right way, then consciousness will emerge. That's a functionalist point of view. And presumably then that would work um, for artificial intelligences. Uh, we, if we get them working in, in the right way, maybe patterned after human brains, but maybe patterned uh, just out of deep principles about consciousness, then we could boot up consciousness in an AI. As David Chalmers put it back in 1996, one, one idea is that implementing the right computation, the right algorithm, suffices for rich conscious experience like our own. So somehow your conscious experiences um, are really the consequence of a complex interaction of physical systems, um, circuits in the brain or circuits in a computer. Um, and perhaps you, you need embodiment. Maybe the brain has to be an embodied um, brain that's an interacting with an environment. But, but somehow that kind of physical uh, architecture will lead to consciousness uh, from the raw ingredients that are not conscious. And if this is right, the idea is that eventually once we understand the program in the brain that uh, is running hu human consciousness, uh, your consciousness, uh, has all your your hopes your fears your desires your memories um, your goals in life once we have all that we can uh, you know we and understand how to decode that we can download presumably um your consciousness your memories uh into a computer and you could be immortal as long as the computer is running so in principle and, and many you know I, AI think that this may be possible that uh, we'll be able to reverse engineer the the code of the brain that causes consciousness and um download your consciousness into a computer and give you some kind of immortality. Um, so, so the idea then is that you know, your, your sensory experiences, sometimes they're called qualia, uh, the, something as bright as all the splashes of color that we see or, or the feeling of pain or the taste of chocolate, all of this um, qualitative experience that we have really is nothing but uh, complicated programs running in physical systems or as we'll talk about in the panpsychist idea that that consciousness is fundamental to the particles themselves and you know one one bit of evidence um in in favor of this kind of point of view it comes from um hemiachromatopsia so there are people who have a stroke um in say the left hemisphere of the brain in an area called area v4 visual area four and for those people, 
their color experience in the left visual world can be normal, but in the right visual world, they will only see shades of gray, like, like a black and white image because of the stroke to the left um, V4. And if you had the stroke on the right V4 instead, you would have the reverse. You'd have color on the right and only black and white on the left visual field. And you can also do this with magnets. So you can take a normal person and take a transcranial magnetic stimulation device and touch it to the skull outside the, um, you know, near the V4 area and inhibit it. And when you do that, the, the normal person will report that all of their color experience drains away, just goes, the color goes away and you just see black and white. But then when you take the magnet away, then they feel and experience the color rushing back into the visual field. So that seems to be a, a pretty important piece of evidence. There's this tight correlation between manipulations of area V4 of visual cortex and the conscious experience of color. So, so and there, this is one of many neural correlates of consciousness that have been discovered. And that's one of the big uh, areas of research that's going on right now in cognitive neuroscience <clears throat> of consciousness is to find neural correlates of consciousness. And this, this area V4 is one of, of many. Now, <clears throat> we know, of course, that um, correlation does not imply causation. Rooster crows and sunrises are highly correlated, and, and indeed, often the rooster crow is before the sunrise, but, but none of us think that the rooster crow causes the sunrise. And so we, you know, it's not enough to say that we've found these correlates, these neural correlates or artificial intelligence correlates of consciousness. Um, we need to actually have a scientific theory that explains exactly how um, the kind of physical activity of the brain or the AI system could possibly cause specific color experiences or specific taste experiences. So we, we need a scientific theory uh, that explains the neural correlates of consciousness. So the neural correlates are not a theory, um, not even close. They're, they are the data that need to be explained by a, a proposed theory of consciousness. And it, it's turned out to be very, very difficult. Uh, this is this problem has been well known for centuries. Um, the idea of trying to understand how conscious experiences could somehow be uh, booted up by physical systems and their activity. This was uh, a problem that Leibniz posed in his monadology 300 years ago. So this is this is an old problem. You know, this we call it the hard problem of consciousness, but it's 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 not a new problem. It, it's and it's been a mystery. Um, Thomas Huxley said that uh, we have as much insight into it as when, uh, you know, Aladdin uh, rubbed his lamp and out came a genie, right? So yeah, you, you, you do something to the brain and out comes conscious experiences or conscious experiences go away, but it's just as mysterious as a genie popping out of a lamp. So, but there have been a number of uh, attempts to understand how we could relate in a scientific way, uh, our conscious experiences to the physical world of space and time and particles. <clears throat> so um, all of the approaches that I list here um, all assume that space and time and physical particles are fundamental. So the global workspace theory of, of Bernard Bars and others um, 
has the idea that somehow it's um, what's in working memory of, of a com computing system. The items that are in working memory and that are available broadly to the rest of the computational system, somehow those are the ones that, that um, enjoy conscious experiences, although it's not um, made clear um, how. Integrated information is perhaps the, the most well-known right now, and it, it basically starts with space-time and particles and says if particles have certain patterns of causal architecture, of sort of uh, integrated information architecture that's quantified by something called phi, then they can have um, or give rise to conscious experiences. So the, the, that same physical system without the right causal architecture would not have consciousness, but with the right causal architecture, uh, it somehow creates consciousness. And then there's the work of Penrose and Hameroff, um, where they suggest that um, somehow certain quantum states of um, microtubules in, in, in neurons in the brain um, and certain orchestrated collapse of the quantum states of these of electrons in the microtubules somehow gives rise to conscious experiences in, in, in the brain. Um, and then there's panpsychism, which you heard about from Philip Goff, where, where they take space and time as fundamental uh, and the particles are fundamental, but the particles, in addition to their, their physical um, laws that, that they obey, they also um, are in fact themselves consciousness. So, so consciousness, um, each particle has some element of consciousness, an electron, a, a proton and so forth, <clears throat> have the unit of consciousness. And, and when they combine to make a, you know, an atom of some kind, then you um, will have a combination of the consciousnesses into new, a new consciousness, and, and also perhaps the subjects uh, into a new subject. So, so the idea then is that the laws of physics are fundamental, but the, but the, the things, the entities behind the laws of physics, you know, what, what drives the whole thing is, is, are these units of consciousness. So, so the units of consciousness um, are, their behavior is captured by the laws of physics and uh and but the laws of physics uh, don't tell you that these things also have consciousness inside them and then finally illusionism um uh, which is you know, a theory that uh, keith frankish and um dan dennett and others uh, proposed is to say it's just space and time and particles and physical objects all the way down um and there is no real thing as consciousness uh, our feeling that uh, we have consciousness or that other creatures might have consciousness is an illusion. It's a user illusion. It's, it's just uh, an artifact of certain um, programs that are running in our brain, uh, introspection programs, for example. Or it could be uh, how we represent our attentional um, system, as in the attentional schema theory. So that's also an illusionist kind of approach. So there, there are all these many theories. And uh, Steven Pinker, who is a, a very famous cognitive neuroscientist and, and interested in the mind-body problem, um, he likes the global workspace theory. And he points out that, you know, he, he thinks that consciousness consists of a global workspace representing our current goals, memories, and surroundings. But then he, he points out, though, even though he likes this theory, he, he points out that the last dollop in the theory, that it subjectively feels like something to be such circuitry, May have to be stipulated as a fact about reality where explanation stops. And, and what, what, what Steve Pinker is pointing out here is that 
the global workspace theory, and this is true of all the other theories, um, the, all the other physical theories, they're trying to boot up experiences from physical activity have been unable to give a concrete example, one concrete example, like the taste of chocolate or, or whatever. So Pinker is pointing out here that it's a great theory, but it doesn't explain how or why it subjectively feels like something to be such circuitry. And so Pinker thinks that these theories will have to just stipulate this as a fact about reality where the explanation stops. Well, so to be specific, right? What we want from all of these physicalist theories is not just a hand wave about how conscious experiences might somehow arise from orchestrated collapse of microtubules or somehow arises integrated information or you know the contents of working memory what we want are specific experiences like the taste of chocolate what is the orchestrated collapse of microtubules that must be uh, the, the quantum states of microtubules that must be the taste of chocolate and could not be say the, the sound of a trumpet what is the uh, global workspace architecture or contents that must be um, the, you know, the taste of potatoes and could not be the, the, the you know, the taste of a carrot. Um, what is the um, architecture that, you know, integrated information architecture that must be the smell of a rose and could not be the, the, the smell of a lemon. Or what is, you know, again, the, the architecture of um, that must be the sound of a saxophone and, and could not be, you know, the sound of a trumpet. What's remarkable. <clears throat> is that brilliant scientists have been working on this problem for decades and there is to date not a single specific conscious experience that can be explained not one and that's a remarkable failure that that there is for all the work that's been done by by brilliant brilliant uh, research many of them friends of mine and colleagues um, but there's not a single specific conscious experience that, that can be explained by any of these theories, not even close. And that's why Steve Pinker said we may just have to um, say that we have to stipulate the conscious experiences. Um, we can't explain them. So why is this? Well, I want to offer a, an interesting idea about why I think these all these brilliant theorists have failed to boot up consciousness from inside space-time. And, and this comes from something uh, within physics itself. Um, for a long time, physics has been about space and time and what happens in space and time. But recently, physicists have discovered that their own theories of quantum field theory and gravity together entail, and this is a quote, that space-time is doomed. So this is what the physicists are saying. Space-time is doomed. And I'll, I'll explain a couple reasons why. So when you, in, in physics, if you want to measure uh, something smaller and smaller, like say measure a property of an electron, and it's very, very small. Well, to, to resolve a smaller and smaller object to, intuitively to see it, you're going to need to use say light or some kind of radiation with smaller and smaller wavelengths. You need small wavelengths to resolve small objects. If the wavelength is too coarse, then you can't resolve the thing that you're looking at. 
So that's fine. We can make you know, light, for example, with smaller and smaller wavelengths. And, and in principle, we can do this um, as, as fine as we want. Now, quantum theory tells us that as we increase the frequency of the light or, or reduce the wavelength, so we make the wavelength smaller, the energy of, of the light gets bigger and gets higher and higher. So to resolve smaller objects, you need more energy. Um, and this is why when you know physicists smash particles into each other to probe the very, very small parts of, of space and time, they need really high energies at like the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva. So this seems a little bit counterintuitive, but to see really small, you need lots of, lots of energy. Well, so in a world where there's just quantum theory, that's no problem. You could, in principle, just keep um, increasing the energy and making the wavelength smaller and resolve as far as you want indefinitely. But it turns out that gravity spoils the, the, the picnic here because Einstein's theory of relativity and, and gravity tell us that energy and mass are the same thing. They're convertible. So as you make more energy into a smaller, smaller area of space, um, you're concentrating more mass in that area. And, and Einstein's theory of gravity then says that, you know, as you put more mass into a small region of space, um, the space curves. And the more mass you put in there, the more that curves. And at some point, uh, you put, if you raise the energy high enough, you get enough mass that you create a black hole and you literally destroy the object you're trying to measure, say the electron or the proton, whatever it might be. So, so space-time, as it turns out, by the time you get down to, not very far, it's only 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. By the time you get to, down to 10 to the minus 33 centimeters or 10 to the minus 43 seconds, space and time <clears throat> cease to have any operational meaning. They're, they, they're just meaningless in terms of there's nothing operational that, that makes sense of them. So, so space and time, or space-time, is doomed um, at what we call the Planck scale. So that's, uh, that's, that's one thought experiment. And I can do another one later on if people are interested in, in more about this. But, but these kinds of thought experiments have, have led physicists to, to the conclusion that space-time cannot be fundamental. Um, and they, they're looking for, and they're finding, new structures beyond space-time. So structures, something called the amplitudehedron, cosmological polytopes, associate hedron. So physicists have already, um, the new generation of physicists, many of them have already let go of space and time, and they've found, they're, you're taking a flashlight into the dark beyond space-time, and they're finding new structures um, that, that um, in which there are no particles, there is no quantum theory, there is no space and time. These are structures beyond all of that. And, but these structures then project down. You can, as a special case, they can project down to space and time. And, and particles and so forth. So, so already the, the hunt is on and, and it's, it's succeeding at leaving space-time behind and going beyond it to deeper and more fundamental structures. And, and so space-time we thought was fundamental, but space-time is doomed. And you know, I would have been impressed if you know, space-time went all the way down to say 10 to the minus 33 trillion centimeters. I would say that's a pretty impressive data structure, but it's only 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, not 10 to the minus 33 trillion. So space-time gives up the ghost 
very, very quickly. It's, it's, a, it's not a very deep data structure. So the problem is that uh, as you try to, to measure things um, smaller and smaller, um, you, don't, you don't have to go very small. 10 to the minus 33 centimeters is all you have to go. And you create black holes. And, and all of a sudden, space and time themselves make no sense. So this has led many physicists to say that um, space time is doomed. So Ed Witten at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton says everyone in string theory is convinced space time is doomed. Uh, Nathan Seiberg, also at Princeton, I'm almost certain that space and time are illusions. These are primitive notions that will be replaced by something more sophisticated. And uh, Nima Arkani Hamed, also at Princeton, um, says the very notion of space-time is not a fundamental one. Space-time is doomed. There is no such thing as space-time fundamentally in the actual underlying description of the laws of physics. And, and these guys are not just saying this, they're actually going beyond space-time and they're finding things. They're finding the amplitudehedron and the po cosmological polytope. So it's, it's really over for space-time. It's not fundamental. And just like uh, Newton's notion of space and time separately, um, you know, was the bedrock of science for centuries. But when Einstein came along, it was over for Newton. I mean, if you were interested in a fundamental understanding of physics, Newtonian space and time were not it anymore. It was it was Einsteinian space time. Well, now even Einsteinian space time, we realize, is not fundamental. That Einstein space time is doomed. And the physicists are finding much deeper structures. <clears throat> And if you want, we can talk a little bit more about the structures that they're finding and, and what's going on there. Um, so that's one pillar of science. It's um, quantum field theory. And Einstein's theory of gravity tell us that space-time is doomed. But another pillar of science, evolution by natural selection, says the same thing. It, it agrees that space and time cannot be fundamental and that therefore particles in space and time and physical objects in space and time are not fundamental. So the, um, we can ask a specific technical question of Darwin's theory of evolution. The question is, does natural selection favor um, accurate or veridical perceptions? This is, it turns out that Darwin's theory um, has been made mathematically precise. Um, and we can, we can try to answer this kind of question. Um, and when we start to, when we just start to look at Darwin's theory, we, um, we do get some hints uh, we have in the past of the evolution of illusion. And so Pinker, uh, Stephen Pinker in 2005 has a wonderful paper called, So How Does the Mind Work? So How Does the Mind Work? And in that paper, he, he outlines um, several intuitive reasons why um, evolution might not favor or shape um, organisms to perceive accurately or perceive the truth about the world around them. And the first is that to see the truth, it takes time and energy. It's, it's costly to do that. And so it, sometimes the, the race is to the swift. It's, if, you, if it takes you 10 minutes to figure out that, that something's about to kill you, well, that, that may not be so good. So you need to be able to do things quickly. So we often in evolution find that we sacrifice truth for speed. We sometimes have to have hypotheses, make inferences about nature. And those inferences that we make are based on our prior experience in the, the hypotheses we bring 
to, to our experience, the, the so-called priors. But priors can be fallible. You know, what, what you assume about reality may or may not be true. So given that we're going to be making inferences based on our past assumptions, our, our, our inferences are only as good as the accuracy of those assumptions. Social pressures. Often we um, have an in-group and an out-group, and we need to um, express certain opinions and, and beliefs to, to be in a group or out of a group. So there are social pressures that shape us, not necessarily to um, believe the truth, but to believe whatever is convenient for social um, convenience. Intellectual virtuosity. You know, this is particularly true among academics that you, you may um, offer ideas or, or claim to have ideas um, simply because they're exotic and, and make you look smart, uh, whether or not <laughs> they're truthful. And finally, it turns out that um, for humans, for example, um, we're a cooperative species. And if everybody cooperates, that, that works. If we're hunter-gatherers and we go out and, and um, hunt and gather, and if you know, Tom doesn't get something today, but Bill does, and Bill shares with Tom tomorrow, then Tom will share with Bill if he gets something. So everybody goes out there and does their best to hunt and gather. And then, and then shares, then and we cooperate. Then it's good for for the species. But it turns out when you do the analysis that um, if Tom decides, look, everybody else is hunting and gathering, I'm just going to go sit down by the river and, and take it easy. I'll I'll just hide there and not risk life and limb, and just come back and say I couldn't find anything, and could I have some of yours? So th those are those are people who are, are not cooperating. They're they're defecting. They're they're deceiving. And it turns out when you do the analysis uh, using evolutionary game theory. If, if there's just one deceiver and everybody else is a cooperator, being a deceiver is a wonderfully fit strategy because you're not risking life and limb and you're still getting fed, whereas everybody else is risking life and limb. But if everybody is a deceiver and no one's hunting and gathering, then the whole thing collapses, right? Because no one's bringing home any food. So, so you have the idea, though, that there's going to be some selection pressures for people to deceive. And... Then it turns out that you'll, you can show that that there'll be selection pressures for the um, the cooperators to detect the deceivers, to figure out who's lying to them, and to you know figure out the liars, and and then to punish them. So you start getting our moral um, uh, emotions and so forth, wanting to you know, punish people and so forth, as part of this reinforcement of, of trying to get people to cooperate instead of deceiving. But it turns out you get an evolutionary arms race. As the cooperators get good at finding the deceivers, the deceivers can get better and better at deceiving. And so you get this, this race where you get better um, detection, better deception, and uh, Robert Trivers, a uh, famous evolutionary theorist, um, pointed out that the best deceiver is someone who has evolved to the point where they don't even know that they're lying. They're self-deceived. They think that they're telling the truth. And then that way they don't betray with you know blushing skin or shifting eyes or whatever body language that they're that they're lying. So Trivers argues that we have selection pressures to be not only lying to others but even lying to ourselves. So we've, we've been shaped by natural selection not even to know our own motives. So so, it's, so there's these kinds of notions of illusion that have been out there for quite a while in evolutionary theory. And without going into the mathematics, I'll just say that. Evolution by natural selection is a mathematically precise theory. And we have the replicator equation, which is here, um, which you can use now to 
frame and answer very precise questions. And so the, the, the question I'm going to ask is, does evolution of natural selection shape sensory systems to perceive the truth about the world around them, to, to perceive truly? And the key notion that I want to talk about is the notion of fitness in evolutionary theory, because that's the key idea that, that is in that equation. So if I have a, a T-bone steak and ask, what is the fitness payoff that that steak offers, say, to very, various organisms, say, a hungry lion? Well, if it is a hungry lion, then that T-bone steak would offer a lot of fitness payoffs for, for the lion. If, if the lion is not hungry, but it's, it's, um, it, it's wanting to mate, then that T-bone steak is not going to offer it any fitness payoffs at all. And for a rabbit, uh, for any action in any state of the rabbit, the T-bone steak probably has very little fitness payoff, or for a, a cow, for example. So you can see that um, fitness depends on whatever the world is. In this example, I'm using T-bone steak as an example of the world, but that's, you know, I'm not claiming that T-bone steaks are real. So whatever the world is, fitness depends on that, but also on the organism like lion versus rabbit, its state like hungry versus sated, and it, the action like feeding, fighting, fleeing, and mating. So fitness payoff functions are really complicated functions of the world, the organism, its state, and its action. And so in simulations with some graduate students of mine, Justin Mark, Brian Marion, and um, and, and others, Kyle Stevens, uh, we found that organisms that we allowed to see the truth in the simulations could not outcompete organisms of equal complexity that didn't see the truth and were just tuned to the fitness payoffs. So we, when we got this result around 2010, I then went to a mathematician and decided it's worth trying to prove a theorem here. And so I went to Chaitan Prakash, who also worked with Manish Singh um, and uh, Chris Fields and, and others. But, but Chaitan Prakash was the, the key mathematician on this. And, and Chaitan proved a series of results which show that effectively the probability is zero that any sensory system of any organism has ever been shaped to see any aspect of the truth or the true structure of the world around us. Probability is precisely zero. So it's, it's truly stunning that here we see evolution of natural selection telling us that our perception of objects in space-time is not the truth. The probability that it is the truth is zero. And that's exactly what physicists physicists are finding as well with the space time is doomed work that they've, they've come up. So the two main pillars of modern science, evolution of natural selection and quantum field theory with gravity, both are telling us that space time and its objects are not fundamental. That's a stunning result. So how shall we understand space and time and physical objects? If, if you know, if space time isn't fundamental, what is? And, and what is it that we're seeing? And what, what's interesting is that our scientific theories are wonderful because they tell us where space-time stops. They say, you know, space-time um, is not fundamental. 
And in, in fact, it, it isn't even a useful data structure after 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. And evolution by natural selection tells us that space-time and its objects um, are not the truth, but those theories don't tell us what the truth is, and they can't. That's All they can do is say, within the framework of the theory, I can tell you that space-time is not fundamental and physical objects are not fundamental, but those, but those scientific theories themselves can't tell us what's beyond. So we have to make a creative leap. We have to go beyond space-time and, and posit a brand new theory beyond space-time. And that new theory then has to be mathematically precise. And when we project it down into space-time, we, we have to get back um, like evolution by natural selection and quantum field theory as special projections of this deeper, deeper theory. So, so intuitively, what I can say is a way to think about what evolution by natural selection is telling us is that we're not seeing the truth, we're seeing something that guides adaptive action, right? So, because evolution is about acting adaptively, staying alive long enough to reproduce. So that, that suggests an interesting metaphor in which space-time and objects aren't the truth, they're just a user interface, like a virtual reality um, interface uh, to, to a game. So it could be a game like Grand Theft Auto or something like that. And, and so there you are, if you're in the game, you can see various cars. Um, you know, I turn my VR headset to the right, I might see a red Camaro. I turn my headset to the left, I might see a white Porsche. When I turn my head to, headset to the right, I create the red Camaro. When I look, there is no red Camaro. And when I look to the left and see a white Porsche, I create that white, white Porsche. There's, there's no white Porsche in reality. Those are all just um, my constructions. What I'm interacting with in this metaphor is a supercomputer somewhere. I don't even have to know about that. And diodes and resistors and voltages and magnetic fields. And when I turn the steering wheel and step on the gas and so forth, what I'm really doing is manipulating you know, voltages, toggling voltages in some supercomputer that I don't even see. And that's great. The, the VR interface lets me control that reality, control that supercomputer without even knowing what that, what that computer is. Uh, so I just have little eye candy, like a steering wheel and cars and so forth, and gas pedals that let me control reality, even though I am completely ignorant about what that reality is. And that seems to be what evolution by natural selection did for us. It um, lets us play the game of life. It gives us our senses, our perception of space and time and objects as a virtual reality interface that lets us act adaptively and play the game of life without even knowing what the reality is that we're interacting with. We don't need to know the truth to, to win the game. In fact, if you... Um, had to know the truth to play this game, and you were in the supercomputer and toggling voltages as fast as you could to try to drive a car, uh, you would lose to someone who actually was just using a virtual reality headset and knew nothing about the truth. So, so actually knowing the truth gets in the way of playing the game. So that's why evolution apparently has shaped us not to see the truth. It just gave us a simplified virtual reality headset. Or you can think about what evolution has done as um, like, a desktop interface on your computer. So if you're uh, you're writing a book or writing an email uh, or a paper or something like that, and the the icon for your 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 paper is blue and rectangular, 
and in the lower right corner of your screen, does that mean that your paper itself or your book is in the lower right hand corner of your computer and that is blue and rectangular? Not at all. I mean, anybody who thought that misunderstands the whole point of the desktop interface. It's not there to show you the truth of the computer, which is, again, the diodes and resistors and voltages. The, the interface is there to hide the truth and give you simple eye candy, like blue, blue icons uh, that lets you control all the, the diodes and resistors without having to know anything about them. And if you had to toggle voltages to send an email, your friends would never hear from you. So you don't, you don't want to see the truth. You want something to hide the truth, but lets you manipulate the truth, even though you're arbitrarily ignorant about the truth. So that seems to be what evolution has done for us. So space and time and objects are not the truth. They're just a really dumbed down user interface that gets us through the day. So you could think about it this way. The view of, of objects that I've been talking about is, is like this um, so-called Necker cube. When you look at this, you probably see a cube in three dimensions popping out of the screen. And sometimes you'll see that face is in front. Other times you might see that face in front. When you're not looking, at the at the screen, which face is in front? Is it that face or that face? Well, the question seems pretty silly. There's neither face is neither cube is there when you don't look. It's just a flat screen. So the cube only exists when you look. You create the cube when you look. The screen is flat. So any 3D that you're seeing is your construction. And you have two different constructions you make and you flip back and forth between them. You'll see one cube and then you'll flip and you'll see the other cube. But you are creating the three-dimensional cube. And also, if you notice, the cube has a volume inside of it. You're actually creating space. You're, you're actually creating a visual perception of 3D space. And so the, the, the object that you're perceiving, the 3D object, does not exist when you don't look. You create it in the act of observation. And that's effectively what evolution of natural selection is telling us, that all objects are the same way. You create them when you look, and you delete them when you look away. Now, an obvious objection to this is, and there are a number of objections, and I'm sure we'll get more in the Q&A, but one objection that's obvious is, well, look, if you think that icon, that, that train coming down the track at 200 miles an hour is just an icon on your desktop, why don't you step in front of it? And after you're dead and, and your silly theory with you, you will know that the train was real and, and it really can kill. And that's, that's a, a fallacious argument. I wouldn't step in front of the train for the same reason. Um, let's see, I'll go, go forward. No, I guess I'll go back here. So I, I wouldn't step in front of the train for the same reason that I wouldn't carelessly drag this icon to the trash can. If I drag that icon to the trash can, um, I will lose, I could lose a lot of work. I, so I, I'm, I take this icon seriously. If I drag it to the trash, I could lose a lot of work, but I don't take it literally. And that's the point. We must take our physical object experiences seriously. Evolution says that they were shaped to keep us alive. If you don't take them seriously, you, you won't survive. So if you see a snake, don't pick it up. If you see a cliff, don't step off. You must take your perceptions seriously, but that does not entitle you to take them literally. So that's just a simple error that we make, but with a psychologically compelling argument that because I must take my perceptions seriously, therefore, that means I must take them literally. 
another argument is, um, look, that um, train, everybody would, would agree that they see a train. And since we all see the train, clearly it must be that the train really exists, right? Tom, Joe, Mary, Samantha, they all, they all agree that I see a train with some blue on it and white on it and red on it. Since we all agree, clearly we're all seeing the truth, but, and, and, and we're not making it up. But again, we all see a cube, but there is no cube. We're all hallucinating the cube when we look at the screen. So the fact that we agree does not mean that we see the truth. It just means that we are using the same kind of user interface, but we don't see the truth. So then the question becomes, well, how shall we begin to understand consciousness and its relationship to the physical world? And what, what becomes clear is that the physicalist framework um, is false from the very start. Space and time are doomed. Space-time is doomed. And also reductionism is doomed. And physicists are very, very clear about this. Nima Arkani Hamed, the physicist, has pointed out very, very clearly that the doom of space-time space -time also means the doom of reductionism. Going to smaller and smaller scales of space will not give us inevitably deeper and more fundamental laws of nature. At some point, space and time just give up and science has to continue to get deeper theories, but not in a reductionist physicalist framework. So, so reductionism is dead. And, and this also poses a, a, a real serious problem. So, so, so it poses a problem for the physicalist um, approaches that I mentioned before, like integrated information theory, global workspace theory, and, and um, you know, other um, orchestrated collapse of microtubules. These theories all assume that space-time and particles are fundamental. Those assumptions are false. So therefore those physicalist theories just have no chance. No, the, the, the researchers who are working on those theories are brilliant, but when you have false assumptions, you, 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 can't, you just can't succeed. If we were starting with earth, air, fire, and water, good luck. Anybody, it doesn't matter how smart you are, if you're starting with earth, air, fire, and water, that's just the wrong starting point to boot up the theory of consciousness. It doesn't matter how smart you are. So you, you can't boot it up a physicalist theory from, from space-time and particles. But it's also now a problem for panpsychism. Um, because what the panpsychists do is they, they say that um, we're going to take space-time and particles as fundamental. So space-time is fundamental. The, the leptons, uh, quarks, and bosons are fundamental, but each, each of those particles also has consciousness inside of it. And so now consciousness is being um, strapped to laws of particles inside space-time, where the particles, space-time, and the laws are not fundamental. And so we're tying consciousness to entities which our best science are telling us is not fundamental. We might as well be tying consciousness to earth, air, fire, and water. We also know that those are not fundamental. So, so that's why I, I think that panpsychism has a, a serious problem here. Uh, taking, it would have been fine 20 or 30 years ago, but now that physicists have discovered that space-time is doomed and that the laws of you know, particle behavior are not the fundamental laws, then panpsychism shouldn't um, tie itself to laws that we know are not fundamental. So how should we proceed then? You know, what's left? Well, the, the direction that my colleagues and I are looking at is to say, let's start with consciousness 
and let's try to boot up space-time and particles and eventually things like brains. So instead of starting with space-time and physical objects and trying to boot up consciousness, we know that our best scientific theories tell us you can't do that because space-time is not fundamental. So let's let's go the other way. Let's let's get a theory of consciousness not strapped to the laws of physics as panpsychism does. So panpsychism straps primitive consciousnesses to obey the laws of physics. Well, we know that those laws of physics are not fundamental. So that's there's there's no reason to strap our theory of consciousness to those laws of physics. Instead, what we want is to be have a deeper theory of consciousness, completely transcending space and time that completely beyond the laws of physics. And this deeper theory then must give rise to space and time. It has to actually um, show how space time arises and how the laws of physics arise as a special projection of a much richer theory. So, so the idea will be that, that the dynamics of consciousness could be extremely rich, much, much richer than the structure of space time and the laws of quantum field theory and so forth inside space time. So if we tried to just as, as panpsychism does, try to just attach consciousness to the little particles in space-time, we would be hamstringing ourselves. We would only be looking at a projection of a much richer dynamics of consciousness that's possible. So that's the direction that, that we're pursuing here. We start with a mathematical model of consciousness on its own terms, not as having arisen from some physical system. And then we show how physical systems arise from consciousness and its dynamics. That's, that's the goal. And uh, if, if I have a, another set of slides, if, if, if there's time and there's interest, I can go into the mathematics. So right now, I'll just talk at, at high level about the, the idea of consciousness that, that we're working on. But if, if uh, people are interested, um, I have slides prepared. I can just go to another little presentation and, and show you the mathematics. But, the, but here, I'll just say the intuition. It's, we have a, a notion of a conscious agent. And intuitively, a conscious agent has just two basic properties. It has experiences, like the experience of, of a headache or the color green or something like that. It has experiences, and, and all agents have their own experiences. And the experiences of an agent can affect the experiences of other agents. That's the only assumptions. So, and that's the, sort of a goal of a scientific theory is to have as few assumptions as possible, because everything you assume is something you're not ex you're not explaining. You're assuming, so you want to have as few assumptions as possible, and then boot up everything else. So, I mean, when we think about consciousness, we want you know a, a conscious agents. For example, we would want to understand learning, memory, problem solving, intelligence, the notion of a self, uh, free will. There's lots of things that you would like a theory of consciousness to deal with. But if I threw all those in to, to begin with and as my assumptions, then I wouldn't be explaining anything. So, so we start off with what we think is the minimal starting set for a, a, a general theory of consciousness. Conscious agents are entities that have conscious experiences and influence the conscious experiences of other agents. Those are the, the, the only assumptions. And then the mathematics of it is something called Markovian kernels. We can talk about that if you want. So think about it as a vast social network like the Twitterverse. It's, it's, it's really, it's, it's like modern social media where you have um, various uh, conscious agents uh, tweeting and following and so forth. So you have all these links and connections and, and what one, one agent tweets, another one follows, and maybe 
uh, retweets and so forth. So, so you have this, this, this network dynamics and that's the idea. So, so it's this network of conscious agents. It's not a network in space and time. It's a network of agents that are entirely outside of space and time. And the idea is that um, when you look at the long-term behavior of these agents, like in, in the Twitterverse, if you look at the trends, what, what's trending in Twitter? That's the long-term behavior in Twitter. When you look at the long-term behavior, it turns out that the long-term behavior of the conscious agents plugs into the structures that the physicists are finding beyond space-time, like the amplitude-hedron. So, so the physicists have, have been starting with space-time and looking for structures behind space-time. They found things like the amplitude-hedron. And it turns out the amplitude-hedron um, fundamentally is all the physical invariant data is captured in permutations. Um, so behind space-time or it's the amplitude-hedron, at the foundation of the amplitude-hedron is permutations. And it turns out, now we go the other way. We start with these networks of conscious agents. We look at their long-term behavior and it turns out the long-term behavior is much more general than permutations, but it has a canonical projection. You can simplify the behavior of the conscious agent network down to permutations. So, so the idea would be the, the dynamics of consciousness is very, very rich, far, far richer than permutations, but you can project it to permutations. When you do that, then you can go through the amplitudehedron and create space-time as a, a dumbed-down user interface that some agents use to understand and interact with other agents. So, so you can see the, the, the big idea here then, instead of starting with space-time as fundamental and particles and booting of conscious agents or consciousness, we start with consciousness, a network of conscious agents, and we boot up space-time. So th that's, once again, the difference between this point of view and the panpsychist point of view. Here I'm taking consciousness as fundamental is not a fundamental part, a property of particles, it's a fundamental part, uh, property of, of agents beyond space-time and beyond particles, and particles are just a little user interface description that some agents use, but there would be many, many other interfaces. Space-time is just one. There are countless other interfaces. What humans see is just one small example of the kind of interfaces that are available. So once again, space-time is not fundamental. It's just a user interface. So the idea then is that we start with a network of conscious agents and from that network, we boot up the virtual reality interface that we call space-time and physical objects. So if we start with consciousness as being fundamental, then there, there is a, a an interesting question that is you know, what is consciousness up to and why what, what is consciousness doing right and right when we think about consciousness inside space and time we often think about it in terms of evolutionary theory and we say well you know consciousness maybe helped you to survive somehow or uh, you know maybe maybe it was an accident but maybe it helped us just survive but now we have to think completely differently space and time are not fundamental evolutionary theory is not fundamental Consciousness itself is fundamental. So what is consciousness up to? And I don't know, but, and I've only found one idea that I think is deep enough so far to, to take seriously. And I don't, I'm not saying that this is right, 
but it's at least deep enough to to be interesting and, and to take seriously. And it comes from a, a guy named Kurt Gödel. Around 1930, he he proved uh, what are called as incompleteness theorems, Gödel's incompleteness theorems. And what Gödel discovered was that effectively the exploration of mathematical truths is unending. There, there is no way to be omniscient about mathematical truths. And what's interesting about that idea then is that if consciousness is fundamental and consciousness is all there is, then mathematics is all and only about consciousness. And that means since mathematics is endless, the exploration of mathematics is endless, then that means the, the exploration of the possible varieties of consciousness and conscious experiences is also endless. And so maybe what consciousness is doing is exploring its own possibilities. And it's a theorem that that exploration will never stop. And so maybe that's what consciousness is up to. It's, it's constantly exploring itself. And so in that case, what, what's happening right now, where we, you know, we, where we go to classes and we talk and we have question and answer, we have lectures and so forth. This is just consciousness um, in space and using space and time as a virtual reality and, and exploring some of its possibilities. So that would be uh, what we're doing right now would be just an example of, of consciousness, um, just putting on a headset and, and exploring one of many, many different possibilities. This is, we have only 3D space. There could be worlds in which there are 10D spaces or in which the very notion of a dimension of a space is, is irrelevant and, and there's no, there is no dimension, there's something else. In which there are instead of three um, axes of color uh, hue, there you know, you know, instead of just a, like a, a red, green, and blue photoreceptor system, we could have you know thirty or fifty or or something completely different. So our our perceptions are just one of of countless different perceptions, and so one theory then is that according to girls in completeness theorem. Um, applied to, to consciousness being fundamental, we would say that maybe consciousness is exploring all of its possibilities. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying that that's right, but it's an interesting hypothesis to explore. We should look for others and have them compete. Um, what about time? Uh, time seems to be an important feature of, of our lives, and it's, it's, uh, it's a limited resource. Uh, in, in some sense, many theories, time is the fundamental limited resource. And, you know, that's, so where, what, how does time come about? Um, and, and does, is time fundamental in, in consciousness or not? And it, it turns out it's, it's quite interesting that the dynamics of conscious agents that um, we've developed um, need not have an arrow of time. By arrow of time, physicists talk about entropy, and you know, you know, the second law of thermodynamics says that as uh, time moves on, things fall apart, things become more disordered, and those are tightly coupled. So the second law of thermodynamics, entropy is always uh, non-decreasing, um, and the arrow of time are, are tightly linked. But we can—it's easy for us to write down many different dynamics of conscious agents 
in which there is no arrow of time, no entropic arrow of time. But it turns out that when we, it's a simple theorem that when you project the dynamics onto, onto any projection um, you know, by conditional probability, then you will induce an apparent arrow of time. It is an artifact of the projection. So it's not a fundamental aspect of reality. It would be an artifact of projection. So you take a dynamics of consciousness, which is timeless. So consciousness itself could have a timeless dynamics, no entropic time, but any view of it, any looking at it from any particular view, necessarily, it's a theorem, it necessarily creates the illusion of an arrow of time. And so that leads to a very interesting possibility that, that maybe the realm of conscious agents, maybe it's a realm in which we, it's, there's cooperation, there's no competition, and there's no limited resources. But when you look at that realm by projection, as an artifact of that projection, you get limited resources, and therefore you get competition, and you get evolution of a natural selection. And that whole process is uh, not fundamental. It's an artifact of the projection. Just like space-time and particles and the laws of physics are not fundamental, they, they just arise because they're properties of a projection. So in it, this is the kind of direction we will have to go because if we, if we take consciousness as fundamental, we have to show how we can boot up space and time and how we could boot up evolution by natural selection um, as projections of the dynamics of consciousness. That's what we have to do as scientists. So, so there's a lot of work ahead, but it's really promising that it's a theorem that, that, that at least for the time part, it's a theorem that um, a timeless dynamics of conscious agents will necessarily project, you know, when you have more code dynamics, it necessarily projects to um, a, a, something that looks like it has an arrow of time, an entropic arrow of time as an artifact. So, from that point of view, the whole history of our universe, from the Big Bang, and perhaps going back to a big crunch or to a cold entropic death, we're not really sure how it's going to, to go, or, or, or ripping apart of, of, of space-time in the limit. That whole notion of a Big Bang and time evolving and so forth would be not fundamental, it would, I mean, it would be a projection, it would be an artifact of a projection of a timeless dynamics of conscious agents. But, but when you take a projection, then time uh, arises as an illusion and you get the Big Bang and, and physical evolution and um, you know, particles and uh, organisms as an artifact. So that's, that's the direction we would want to, to go with this. Uh, so now getting back to, see how I'm doing the time. Oh, I'm a little over. Uh, should I should I quit pretty quick? I'll, well, I'll, I'll go ahead and just wrap it up here. Um, so when you see your face in the mirror, you know firsthand that uh, what you see is just skin, hair, and eyes. But but that behind that is the realm of your conscious experiences. Your face is just a portal. Behind your face is the realm of your all of your conscious experiences with the cat the portal is dimmer with the mouse it's dimmer still with microbes the portal into consciousness is very very dim 
And with rocks, um, our interface gives up. But that's no surprise. The whole point of, of an interface is to simplify things um, and, and hide most of the truth. So it's no surprise. What this means is the distinction that we make between living and non-living is not fundamental. It's an artifact of the limits of our interface. Similarly, the distinction we make between conscious and unconscious is not fundamental. It's an artifact of the limitations of our interface. So the, this is a radical implication of this approach. Um, is it possible to open new portals into the realm of conscious agents? Um, I think so. Uh, I think it, it, I think once we understand uh, this network of conscious agents and how space-time arises as a user interface, then I think that we'll be able to reverse engineer the whole thing and, and play with the software behind space-time and open up new interfaces uh, within space-time. We already have one technology for doing that, we, that we know, and it's having kids. Every time you have a child, a new interface into a, a new portal into um, the realm of conscious agents opens up. So if we can reverse engineer that, we may be able to open up new portals and they may look like um, artificial intelligence. Um, so I'll, I'll, before I say thanks to my colleague, I'll just say one thing, one question that often arises. So about this whole view, I said earlier on that evolution of a natural selection entails that the probability is zero that any of our perceptions are true, right? So space and time and physical objects are not the truth. They're just a user interface. And now all of a sudden I'm saying that if you look at a person's face, I went, that's a portal into consciousness. So now you are getting uh, a window into truth and you're, you're, getting, uh, uh, you're getting something true about a person's consciousness. So haven't, haven't I contradicted myself? Haven't I got myself and shoot, shooting myself in the foot? And, and the answer is no, you have to understand how science works here. It's two steps. The first step is you take evolution by natural selection and you study that theory because it's the best theory we've got in this area. And that theory tells you very clearly, everything that you see is not the truth. It's just a user interface, but it doesn't tell you an interface to what? So, so, natural, so evolution by natural selection is saying, look, space and time and physical objects they're not the reality there's a deeper reality but i can't tell you what that reality is so natural selection can't tell you what it is it can just tell you that whatever that deeper reality is the probability is zero that it's space and time and physical objects and laws of physics and particles that that it can tell you that is ruled out space time and particles and physical objects are ruled out that's not the reality but it can't tell you what the reality is so now Second step is to say, okay, as a scientist, I now am going to make a new step and I'm going to propose that the reality behind space and time is consciousness. And if that's the case, then I can say that when you look at a person's face, you are you could be getting genuine insight into their conscious experiences. But that's notice that's a new hypothesis beyond the evolutionary one. And this is what we have to do all the time in in as we go from one level of scientific theory to the next. The scientific theory tells us where it stops. We have to make a creative leap and go beyond. So, so it's not logically shooting myself in the foot to say evolution by natural selection tells us that we don't, that what we see is not the truth. 
And then to say, well, okay, space and time and objects aren't the truth, but I'm going to propose that consciousness is the truth. And so when I look at a face and get hints about consciousness, I am getting a true insight. And that doesn't contradict the, the, the work on evolution. It's just saying that the face itself is not literally the truth, but it is a portal to the truth. It's, it's a user interface to the truth. And the truth is the consciousness of the person behind the face. So th that just gives you an idea about the logic of, of how this thing works and the kinds of arguments that could help me against it. The first one is from Lily Spector. Um, have you tested your mathematical formula of truth on altered states of consciousness, for example, with psychedelics? Well, that's going to be a, a very interesting direction to explore um, for, for two reasons. When we have psychedelic experiences, the, the question is, are we just hitting the head with a hammer? Basically, we're just messing up the brain and, and you know, what we see is just you know, an, an error, something messed up. Or is it possible, and, and this is now becomes possible with this theory of conscious agents, is it possible that somehow drugs themselves, the right drugs, could open up new portals into this realm of conscious agents? And so I, I, if, you, if you're a physicalist, the answer is very, very clear. There, there is no realm of consciousness beyond space-time. Space and time are fundamental. So um, the, there's absolutely no way that the, the psychedelic drugs are opening up new portals into new varieties of consciousness. They're just sort of screwing with your brain and messing it up like as if someone hit you with a hammer or something. But, but with the conscious agent theory, it, it leaves open the possibility that maybe some psychedelics, not all, but maybe some, are opening up genuine portals. So what we have to do is take the mathematical model of consciousness, the conscious agent theory. We have to do that entire mapping that I, that I outlined, where we have to take the long-term behavior of conscious agents, the asymptotic behavior, take the projection of that down onto permutations, and then use the permutations to go through the amplitudehedron into space-time, the part that the physicists give us. Once we have that whole mapping, we can then ask, okay, how do we how do we get faces to be portals into consciousness? Once we understand that, and how do we open up new portals like having kids, then we can ask finally get to this technical question that, that, that Lily asked, which is, could it be that psychedelics open up new portals? So you can see we have a lot of work to do, but this framework makes it at least conceivable that we could find that the answer is yes, and we understand how it works, and that then we could um, engineer even better um, new portals into the, the um, realm of conscious agents. And this, by the way, gives us a different twist on the Fermi paradox, right? The Fermi paradox, uh, Enrico Fermi is famous for talking about um, alien intelligence is saying, where are they? His, his, his big question is, where are they? We can't find them. Well, the, the answer that conscious agent theory would give is, um, they're all around you. Take off your headset. You're looking inside your headset, but they're all around you. There's conscious agents everywhere. So, so we're, we've been looking. It's, it's like you, you have your headset, a virtual reality headset on. There's people all around you, and you can't see them. You're looking inside your. All you have to do is take the headset off, and you'll see them there. So we may be looking in the wrong places. Um, sure, we have some portals. Our headset gives us some portals into the consciousness, but very, very few. Um, you, 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 if you want to see the con more consciousness, just take your headset off. So that would be an interesting new uh, approach to the Fermi paradox. That's fascinating and terrifying at the same time. 
Um, so next one here is from Christina. The infinite exploration of possibilities makes me think of the spiritual idea that we're all manifestation of God exploring itself. I believe spiritual or religious ideas could provide valuable ideas for further scientific exploration. Have you any thoughts on that? I, I completely agree. I think that this is a chance for science and spirituality to begin to seriously cooperate, right? Recently, it's, it's you know, since Galileo, for example, it's, it's been um, sort of bad blood between science and, and religion. Uh, but, and the physicalist framework of science has been, um, you know, inimical to most spiritual traditions where they spiritual traditions have been saying that space time is doomed that space time is not fundamental and but and and physicists scientists have now just in the last 20 30 years realized that's right but, but and we can prove it space time is doomed it's not fundamental so i think now the the door is open for science and spirituality to to really begin to to interact i think that the that Scientists can listen to some of the insights that the spiritual traditions have, have had. And, and I'm not saying that, you know, we should take everything at face value. Of course, we, just like we do with our scientific theories, we, we're, we come at it with care. We're, we're careful. We, we test everything and we try to find out what, what ideas are reasonable and work out and which ideas are, are, are less fruitful. So, so I'm not saying just, accept everything that the spiritual traditions say, but I, I would say have a very fruitful and respectful dialogue. And scientists can do something for the spiritual traditions, which is spiritual traditions talk a lot about um, pointers. What, you know, the, like the Tao Te Ching, the Tao that can be spoken is not the, the true Tao. And so all, they only talk about pointers and, and the, the Buddhists say the finger pointing to the moon is not the moon, it's just a finger pointing to the moon. And so the, the point is that all these, the oral traditions and the writings of the spiritual traditions are, are not to be taken as the truth, but pointers to the truth. Well, science can help us evolve the pointers and get better and better pointers. So for example, the, the pointer that, um, the, the Tao that can be spoken is not the true Tao. Well, we now have Girdle's incompleteness theorem. That's, that's what the Tao Te Ching is starting with, is Girdle's incompleteness theorem, but we now have a proof of that. And the intuition, of the spiritual tradition that space-time isn't fundamental, we now have a theorem, space-time is doomed. So you can see that as we start to move in this direction, science and spirituality can go back and forth. Um, and one really good thing that science brings to the table here is humans tend to be dogmatic, scientists included. We're dogmatic just like everybody else, but science as a social institution pits scientists against each other. And as a social institution, science is not dogmatic. As we see, science could think that for, for hundreds of years that space and time or space-time is fundamental and then wake up and say, oh, wow, space-time is doomed. That's, that's anti-dogmatism right there. You know, centuries of dogma have, are being overturned as we speak. So that's what we really need as we pursue the spiritual realm because we, the, we haven't had the precise tools in the spiritual realm. We've, we've had, of course, meditation and first-person experience, which is really important. But we've not had the benefit of the, the formal mathematics. And by the way, it's not that the mathematics could ever be the whole truth. I agree with the Tao Te Ching. 
the Tao that can be spoken is, is not the true Tao. And Gödel tells us the same thing. But what's really interesting is, for some reason, consciousness does play with forms. It does explore. Even though consciousness itself will always transcend space and time and what it can do in space and time or, or, or anything. It always, but somehow it's very important for consciousness. Maybe what consciousness has to do is put on a virtual reality headset, plunge itself in to a new virtual environment, explore that, lose itself completely, lose the, even lose its identity. It doesn't even know that it's consciousness. It thinks it's a little tiny creature inside this vast you know, 93 billion light years across space time. And, and it slowly wakes up over a lifetime, or maybe not. Maybe it dies at age 70 and never woke up. But, but it, it, what it's doing is, is immersing itself very seriously, learning what it can, and then it take, death is taking the headset off and moving to the next, to the next game. And the next, so, so you can see there's a lot of possibility between science and spirituality going forward. And, 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 and again, it needs to be respect from both sides, but both sides will have to give up a lot that they hold very dear. That's how things work. Giving up space time is, is a real painful one for the scientists, but they're having to give it up. We will have to give up our, our pet ideas in many cases or find that are, that are new ideas that are far more uh, deep and insightful than the ones that we thought were the final word. Okay, I, I love that viewpoint. I think it's a really interesting uh, perspective. And if that is the case, if that's what's happening with consciousness, it's sort of places responsibility on the individual to make it an interesting and worthwhile experience as well, I suppose. Um, is anybody from, uh, from here want to come forward? Yeah, please do. Just say, introduce yourself and yeah. Uh, hi Donald, uh, my name is Alex. Uh, quick question. Most of your examples, I mean, I think all of them, uh, to explain your views are based on digital world examples, so the 3D cube, the video games, the desktop. Have you considered that living through this um, invention influenced your views? So, because I would think that explaining what you explained without those examples would be very hard, because it's only by having this uh, notion of something in a, analog, in, in a real world and in digital world, can you see the difference? Because what I would think, um, and I still believe in the view that we actually, yes, I completely agree that we see a very, very simplified version of the reality, but it is still reality. And my example of it would be uh, driving a car where by steering a wheel, you cannot, of course, know exactly what's going on inside the car, but you can, um, you can still see like a, a little part of that reality. And uh, perhaps, yes, uh, space-time is doomed, but not in terms of not being true, but in terms of, again, just another simplified version. And yes, we can dig deeper and deeper and deeper, but I would think that this digital world messed up our heads <laughs> and now it gives you a very good ground of explaining your theory just because of you have this uh, example and in grand scheme of things it's just a fleek we will invent many many other things and we will be able to explain maybe through some very different ways of thinking um, that 
um, the reality is some sort of other way. But I'm saying that this current state of explanation and your views are heavily influenced by having this digital example of having hardware and software completely separated. Uh, have you considered that? A great question. So, so couple couple thoughts on that. The evolution by natural selection has is just simply a theorem of that theory that the probability is zero that space time and its objects are fundamental. That that. But it doesn't tell us how to think about them. It just says that whatever the reality is, is not what you see. And now the physicists are finding the same thing. It's, it's, it's simply a theorem of quantum field theory together with, with gravity that the probability is zero, that, that, that space-time is fundamental. And what, what's happening, and I, and I should, I didn't say, but let me just say what's happening on the physics side, because they're not using my, my metaphor at all, and, that, and that's not stopping them. So the, the metaphor isn't what's really driving, you know, the, the, the virtual reality interface metaphor isn't what's driving. I just use that to help people to, to grok the idea because it's so counterintuitive. But here's what the physicists are doing. The physicists, um, they're trying to explain scattering processes, like in the Large Hadron Collider, like two gluons go smashing into each other, four gluons go spraying out. And it turns out when you try to do that using space-time physics, like quantum field theory. Um, you use Feynman diagrams and you have to compute all the, these loops in the Feynman diagrams. It turns out just to do two gluons in, four gluons out, it takes billions of terms to compute the scattering probability, what they call scattering amplitude. Billions of terms, hundreds of pages. And it was such a big problem for the experimentalists trying to do you know, collisions that they begged the theorists to, to simplify it. And in 1986, two mathematicians worked really hard and they, they collapsed the hundreds of pages down to nine pages. And then and they published it and everybody was going, wow, that's, that's amazing. That they, and, and then those guys, they spent so much time with it, they guessed a one-term answer. And it turned out to be right. It's called the Park-Taylor formula. It came out in 1986. It collapsed billions of terms into one term and people were stunned. This was a hint that doing things inside space-time was messing, it was making it unreasonably hard. So they began to look for other examples and they found example after example. And by the time we got to the amplitudehedron, so that's in 2013, the amplitudehedron was published. What they find is all these, when you do all the computations in space-time, so you use space and time as fundamental, you get these nasty, nasty billions of terms I mean, just billions of terms, hundreds of pages. When you do it, when you let go of space-time and use the new structures that they're finding, so you just say, forget space-time, let's go deep. They're, by the way, forget quantum theory. What, what they're going, they're leaving Hilbert spaces behind. So you leave Hilbert spaces and Einstein's space-time, you leave them behind. You go into this new realm of the amplitudehedron and you discover the math becomes trivial. You can compute these amplitudes by hand. And second, you discover new symmetries, something called the dual conformal symmetry that you cannot see in space-time. So what happens is space-time is a really terrible interface. It's making the computations bil literally billions of times harder than they have to be, and it's hiding symmetry. So, so now the physicists are really on board. They don't know what this realm of beyond space-time is, but whatever it is, 
there are beautiful symmetries there that, that, that they're discovering and the math becomes easy. So, so the younger generation is just all in now. They're, they're you know, Nimar, Connie, Hamed and so forth. And they don't have this user interface metaphor that, that I'm talking about. So the, so the, the space time is doomed stuff is completely ind independent of that. But I'll say this, the new generation that's being raised on the metaverse, they're just gonna get this. Right, they spend a few hours in the metaverse on a daily basis. And they take their headset off. It's going to be a no-brainer that I'm not seeing the truth. It'll just be obvious to them that it's very, very likely that what they're seeing in space and time is just another headset. And they'll they'll be the ones that can then really take the physics that the you know, amplitude heat and so forth to to the next level because they won't have any hangups about letting go of space time. They'll just they'll be they'll be done with space time. So so the metaverse and you know, virtual reality is a good metaphor for us. I think it'll eventually be a help. But it's definitely not what's motivating the physicists. They're letting go of space time for their own reasons. Thank you for the talk. Uh, I think a lot of interesting points. I think we all agree that we don't see reality as it is. That would be highly inefficient. Uh, some video on that one. Uh, I wanted to ask on one point in particular that you brought up a, a number of times, being the incompleteness theorem. Uh, now, my understanding of this, uh, if I remember my uni education correctly, is that it states you can either have contradictions in the system or there will be theorems that are true, but unprovable within a right. system complex enough. I, what I'm trying to understand is the implications on physics or philosophy or everyone frame that from those statements. Right, so, so, so most, you can't prove that, that the consistency of the mathematics and, and Gödel shows that you can have, it's either cons consistent and incomplete, or it, it can be <laughs> complete but inconsistent, I guess. And and no one really goes for the inconsistency because if you, if it's inconsistent, then then the whole thing unravels. So everybody interprets pretty much that that what Gödel is telling us is that um, that any finite axiomatization of mathematics will always be incomplete. And and therefore, what that means, by the way, for science, since our scientific theories in general are are mathematically precise and have you know at least the power of arithmetic. Um, Gödel's incompleteness theorem applies to our scientific theories. Every scientific theory um, um, leaves out infinitely many possibilities um, of, of truths that that are, are th things that are true given the uh, axioms, but cannot be proven by uh, the, the set of axioms themselves. So what that means um, is that there can be no theory of everything in science. There is no theory of everything. There can only be a theory of everything except my assumptions. The assumptions of a scientific theory are the miracles of that theory. And of course, you can then say, well, I'll give you a new theory that um, explains those assumptions. But then your, your new theory will have its own assumptions. And this, this is never ending. So the good news from Gödel and from this, there's no scientific theory of everything, is that there is infinite job security for scientists. This is really good news for us. So, so we should rejoice. Brilliant. OK, one more question just to finish off here, Donald. Um, I'm just curious about your, um, how has exploring consciousness for all these years impacted your own sort of sense of spirituality? And I know recently you've had a, a brush with your own mortality. I'm just curious about what your thoughts are on, on death and how your theory relates to that. Well, yeah, like COVID um, damaged my heart and just about killed me about a year ago. And I, I'm, still recovering it's it's a very very long and slow recovery so yeah it um i i actually faced death and said goodbye to my wife i thought it was over about a year ago 
so really, you know, it takes it from the abstract and makes it a very real, um, real thing. And, and I must say, like like any normal human being, um, I'm inconsistent. <laughs> so w right now, I'm talking all the science and saying space time is is doomed and it's not fundamental and so forth. But as soon as I start talking and I, and I go walking around in the everyday world, I, I behave and, and feel like I'm in the real world. I, you know, the, the, the car is really there. So I, it's, it's, but what spiritual traditions do is, right, they, they get you to wake up in a, in a more, not just intellectual sense, but to really experience yourself um, as not in, inside space and time. And so I, I, I meditate. Um, and maybe I'm a real hard nut to crack. I, I, even with all the, the science that I've been studying, um, I, I go around believing that space-time is fundamental and physical objects are fundamental and worried about death, the automatic worries about death. But when I, when I'm, when I really sit back and, and dispassionately looking at it, the evidence is all very clear that death must be just taking off a headset. So, so part, of me, part of me knows that, the intellectual part of me, the, it hasn't gotten through the entire um, subcortical limbic system. The, the limbic system is still afraid of death, and it, maybe it'll take a lot more meditation for the limbic system to get get you know, caught up with the cortex. <laughs> That's a nice end to the day, that death is just taking off a headset. <laughs>